Okay, so there are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. And as David said last week, there's a lot packed into them, uh, which is why, despite starting these talks all the way back in January, we're still only um, in chapter 12. But that said, we have got to a very important late stage in the life of the Lord Jesus. We've got to the end of his public ministry. In verse 36 that uh, we finished with last week, it says that Jesus finished speaking, left the crowds and hid himself from them. Now, unlike the other Gospels, which are more like storybooks, uh, in a sense, um, each setting out the life story of the Lord Jesus, more or less in the order that things happened. Um, as we thought um, previously, John's doing something very different in his Gospel. It's like he's come along as our guest speaker and he's got a message for us. He's preaching and his Gospel, which is sometimes called a book of signs, is a gospel presentation and so far it's like he's kind of taken us through a series of powerpoint slides uh, which each build and make the case for jesus and the things that he's included and the way that he presents them and the order in which we find them it's all about john presenting his message in a particular way and what we have here in chapter 12 are things that he's actually already told us, but he's bringing it all together now as a, as a sort of summary slide of what Jesus taught and also a summary of how people responded. Now, I should say before we start the reading that when we get down to verse 44, it does look like Jesus has come out of hiding for one last sermon. But I think actually that John is probably just quoting a variety of things that Jesus has said on other occasions. I think he's using um, spirit-led poetic license um, to give us this summary of the gospel of Jesus. So let's read it now. So we're in chapter 12 and we're reading from verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. 
The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. That's our passage for today. We've got two summaries in this passage, I think. A summary of the teachings of Jesus and a summary of how people responded. So let's look at them in the order that John wrote them. He starts by telling us that despite everything that Jesus said and did, so many people did not believe in him. And even of those who did believe, many wouldn't admit it. And it's a really sad summary, isn't it? But at the same time, it's the response that God always expected. As we can see in the prophecy that God gave to Isaiah all those hundreds of years before, a prophecy that John is telling us was pointing to the ministry of Jesus. When people would not believe either the message or, as Isaiah put it, the arm of the Lord being revealed. In other words, they wouldn't believe what Jesus said or the signs that he did uh, to support that message. I guess, in a strange way, there's an encouragement for us in this, um, in understanding that there will always be unbelievers, no matter how hard we try to tell others the good news, um, the gospel. We've often been disappointed, haven't we, um, at the poor response when we advertise and invite, invite people along to our various events and church services. And uh, we've often been disappointed at the lack of interest um, from those who, who do turn up. They either don't come back ever again or they come for a while and then they seem to, to drift away. And we look at our dwindling numbers, uh, not just us, but other churches as well. Um, and we might think, what are we doing wrong? And of, of course, it, it's right that we should ask ourselves that question. We should ask ourselves if there's anything about our methods or our levels of enthusiasm or anything about our lifestyle, which is, which is adding to the problem. But we should also remember that unbelief, disinterest and complete rejection even, they were all the responses that Jesus himself experienced and he was the greatest gospel preacher of all. So, as I say, I think there's a kind of a, <laughs> an encouragement in that. It doesn't take away the disappointment, but maybe reassures us that the response is not necessarily completely down to, um, to the way we're presenting the message. By the way, the other quotes from Isaiah in, in, in verse 40 shouldn't be taken that God deliberately prevents some people from believing. Uh, we can see clearly in the New Testament that there is a universal invitation and we can see that God wants everyone to be saved. But I think it's like with Pharaoh in the days of Moses. God will harden a heart that is already hard. In other words, when God sees that someone is so set in their ways and perhaps in his foreknowledge knows that they'll never change, he will, as it were, confirm their own choices. He does reach out to those who are ignorant 
and he will strive with those who are struggling or even resisting, but ultimately he will reject those who reject him. And how do we know when that happens? When do we give up on someone? Well, we don't, do we? I guess it's a bit like doing CPR in first aid. We don't stop trying until someone else takes over um, and we leave it to God to judge in the end. Okay, so um, that was the first part, um, the summary of how people responded. Let's think about what they were responding to. Let's think about the key themes in the ministry of Jesus, the themes that John is summarizing in verses 44 to 50. And I think there are seven of them. Okay, uh, don't worry, I've not got so, so long, so I'm only going to run through them quite quickly. But I think there are seven themes in the ministry of Jesus that John is pulling together um, with, I suspect, quotations from Jesus on other, on, from other times during his, um, his three years of public ministry. Let's look at them. Firstly, in verse 46, he reminds us that in spiritual terms, um, there is light and there is darkness. And there are no shades of grey. There's nothing in between. We're either with God or without him. We're either for Jesus or against him. Jesus came so that we would no longer be in darkness, it says. No longer separated from God. He came so that we can come into the light, which is a new relationship with God and everything else that goes with that. So that's the first point. The second point is also in verse 46, I think. There we see that Jesus um, is the light. So we see Jesus as the light who came to lead us into the light. And although he's central to both, I think there's a subtle difference between the light we've just been thinking about, the opposite of staying in darkness, and the light that Jesus is giving us through his word. Because the first light, I think, is more of a destination. It's where he wants to lead us. And the second light is how he leads us. It's a light of revelation. He's showing us the way. And in that sense, Jesus being the light of the world is very much associated with his earthly ministry. And as he warned them in, in, in verse 35, they would have that light for only a little while longer. Thirdly, for Jesus to be the light, his teachings must be true. And in verses 49 to 50, we get the assurance that everything he taught came from God the Father. The word of Christ and the word of God are the same thing. Which brings me to the fourth point, which is the close connection between Jesus and the one who sent him, as it says in verse 44. But it's not just a connection, is it? It's not just like they're related. Um, verse 45, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Quite simply, and Jesus repeats this uh, vital point in the upper room of his disciples, which we'll see in the next few weeks. Uh, when we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. And that point carries into number five. 
uh, a crucial point when it comes to the gospel, and that's the importance of faith. Read for, um, verse 44. Uh, it says, Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. So we've got the connection there, but crucially for this point, it's whoever believes, whoever believes. So whatever we believe, whatever we decide about Jesus is also a decision about God. How's your memory doing? Uh, five points uh, so far. We've had number one, the realms of light and darkness. Two, Jesus is the light who wants to bring us out of that darkness. Three, the truth and therefore the authority of his word. Number four, the revelation that Jesus and the Father are one. And number five, um, despite all the evidence that John is giving us, in the end, we still need faith if we want number six. And number six is all about salvation. It's obviously a key part of the ministry of Jesus and um, we'll be seeing in a lot more detail in the later chapters of John um, uh, that it's the key thing that he came to do to make it possible uh, for us to be saved. Um, but salvation is absolutely critical to his, his message, isn't it? Um, the, the second part of verse 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He came to save. And there are so many blessings that we associate with our salvation, aren't there? Uh, eternal life, as it mentions very briefly in verse 50. Uh, an inheritance, uh, a place being prepared for is in heaven, a, a, a new relationship with God, uh, coming into the light, as we've thought. These are all the aims of salvation. But we can't have any of that unless we've been saved from something. That's the key definition of salvation, isn't it? It's being saved from something. And that's my seventh point. We can't talk about being saved from something if we don't also talk about judgment. As Jesus said, judgment wasn't the reason why he came, but it will be when he comes again. And as it says in verse 48, it's how people respond to his words, the words of Christ, that will determine how they'll be judged at the last day. So that's it. That's the public ministry of Jesus in a nutshell, I think. It's about being saved from spiritual darkness and judgment. It's about coming into the light and all that that means. It's about believing in Jesus and it's about how we respond to his words, the words of God. Believing, accepting and responding. And we might think there's not much difference between those three words, believing and responding especially, but there is a difference, I think. Um, think of it like this. Let's say I um, call you up and I say, hi, it's me, Ian. Um, really sorry to trouble you, but I'm in the car and I've run out of fuel. I've tried to phone Angela, but I don't think she's got her phone with her. Would you mind picking me up from the John Lewis at Cheadle and running me home? So you know it's me, yeah? You believe it's me. You trust in my identity. 
Uh, it's not a great illustration, this, but it's the best I could come up with. Um, secondly, do you accept the story I've told you? Why I need your help and what I'm asking for? So, will you come and help me? Well, that's a tumbleweed moment, isn't it? Where, where it turns out that you're all really, really busy. <laughs> and I'll just have to wait for Angela to come and pick me up sometime. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking about three different types of belief. And I said that we should be able to see quite easily which type of belief that the Lord Jesus encountered that, that, um, that best reflects our own, um, our own faith. Because there were those who believed like the Pharisees, but it was a belief that led them to oppose Jesus and to try to destroy his ministry. There were those who believed in the miracles. Um, they'd seen them with their own eyes. They could not believe. But for them, Jesus was just a sideshow. He was, he was entertainment. He was a celebrity. He was someone to get a selfie with, if they'd had the ability to do selfies in those days. And then there were those who believed enough to make them want to follow Jesus. Even though they only had a partial understanding, even though their faith therefore was very limited, they wanted to follow. And that is the true faith that God is looking for. And in this passage, John wants to help us understand more what that true Christian faith looks like. And like in my little illustration uh, it's believing in Jesus who he is his his identity verse 44 whoever believes in me he said but it's not just believing in Jesus it's accepting his story verse 48 Jesus said anyone who does not accept his words will be judged and then thirdly it's doing something about it it's keeping his words as we see in verse 47, that's, uh, that's the response. And I think that's how James pretty much puts it. I'm not going to James, but you know that he sort of brings it all together, that it's very hard to separate faith and works because without faith, if, if without works, there's a question over, over our faith. And doing what Jesus asks in our day-to-day -day lives might be the bit that we struggle with most but it's our willingness to try, no matter how imperfectly. It's our willingness to try which reveals most about where our heart is, if we are true believers. So that's just about it. Um, John's given us a summary of the gospel that Jesus preached, and he's given us a summary of how people responded. Some believed in the way we've just thought, and many didn't. But there was one group of people in between, and I want to just finish with them because if we want a challenge from this passage, and it's always good to try and find something in a passage that hopefully will affect something about the way we do things, the way we live. If we want a challenge from this passage, their example, and it's not one to follow, is perhaps the best one for us to go away and think about. I mentioned them earlier. The believers in verse 42 who wouldn't admit their faith. And although John doesn't say it made their faith invalid, he's really given them a sharp rebuke here, isn't he? 
And he says that their unwillingness was down to two things. He says, firstly, it was fear. Look at the end of verse 42. It was the threat of excommunication, of being put out of the synagogue, of being separated from everything that was the fabric of their lives. Friendships, positions of responsibilities and so on. These things were important to them. So any threat to be separated and put away from all of that was something to be afraid of. And we might have some sympathy with that. We might even ourselves feel cautious or even afraid of telling others about our faith. If we think they, there might be severe consequences, uh, relationships that might be affected, uh, damaging our career or business interests maybe, or, 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 or perhaps much worse in terms of real persecution. I'm sure some of our brothers and sisters um, in churches of God and in the body of Christ around the world um, know that as a very real thing that they might perhaps be afraid of. And in circumstances like that, we need to pray for wisdom and courage, don't we? But with the leaders that John's referring to, their fear was down to something else, something we might be less sympathetic with. Basically, they like to be popular. They liked the praise and respect that went with their positions. They liked the approval of their peers. They liked to be invited to the best dinners and have the best seats at the table and all sorts of stuff like that. And they didn't want to put that at risk. Now, I say we might be less sympathetic, but actually the desire for approval is very much in our human nature. If you've ever thought twice about what to wear, or what car to buy, or what to say about something you've done or bought, or, or even about whether or not to give your opinion or how to express your opinion. Um, if you've ever thought about what other people might think, then you know that we care about something which isn't always a good thing. We care about the approval of others. And it's not a good thing if it ever leads us to hide or downplay our faith. And we can pray for help with that too, I think. For courage and wisdom again, to do what we believe is right and not just what we think other people think uh, we should do. But perhaps also just pray for the confidence to know that it's only God's opinion of us that matters. Praise from God is worth more than human praise, which is so fickle anyway, isn't it? So right, there we really are. I've said that three times now, haven't I? Uh, in our series of talks, um, I'm done. Um, we're now at the end of uh, the Lord's public ministry. Next week, we're moving into chapter 13 and the upper room. And there we're going to listen in on a very special private ministry that Jesus shared just with his close disciples. And I think Steve's on the talk next week, so we can all look forward to that.